Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. In this great American experiment. We'll be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together. To debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Cash for illegal immigrants, gas prices, and infrastructure is another episode of Vince and Jason Save the Nation. And you lost your child. You lost your child. It's gone. You deserve some kind of compensation. OPEC is a cartel and it controls over 50% of the supply of gasoline. Joe Biden and large entourage of Democrats from the House and the Senate and his cabinet all jetting off to Europe to a climate conference. Well, look, I do think the voters uh, sent a message on Tuesday. They wanted to see more action in Washington. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Everybody, welcome back to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. We've got a great show for you today. A whole lot going on in America right now. Uh, Vince, let's talk about it. Well, let's start with uh, the president of the United States faced a couple of questions this past week about whether or not the Biden administration and the Justice Department specifically is about to cut half million dollar checks per person to a category of illegal immigrants who came into the country and were met with enforcement. Take a look at Joe Biden on Saturday. President Biden may have insisted reports his administration was going to pay migrant families separated at the border was, quote, garbage. But now he's changing his tune. You said last week uh, that this report about uh, migrant families at the border getting payments uh, was garbage. No, I didn't uh, say that. Let's get it straight. Now, here's the thing. Sure. If, in fact, because of the, the outrageous behavior of the last administration, you coming across the border, whether it was legal or illegal, and you lost your child. You lost your child. It's gone. You deserve some kind of compensation, no matter what the circumstance. All right. So you saw there David Spun of Fox News was asking Joe Biden to account for his prior answer that he had given to Peter Ducey earlier in the week, suggesting that a Wall Street Journal report that had laid out that children who were separated from their parents each person in the family unit back in 2018 under the Trump administration is slated to get somewhere in the vicinity of $450,000 a person from a Justice Department settlement. Uh, they, they expect that that's going to be on average about a million dollars per family that the United States government is sending out. So when Joe Biden was first asked about that report, he said it was garbage. On Saturday, uh, after he got some pressure from the ACLU, the ACLU came out with a statement last week, Jason, saying that it seems that the president is not being kept apprised of what's happening within the Justice Department. The White House um, began to turn the message a bit and suggest that uh, his only objection was to the reported dollar figure. That was what he was saying was garbage. And so by the time we see him on Saturday, he's uh, now basically defending the payments out to the illegal immigrant families. What do you think of all of this? Um, so, I mean, that was that was kind of how I interpreted it from the from the very beginning was the fact that he was saying that, uh, you know, this reported dollar figure was not necessarily correct. Um, and so I, I actually kind of interpreted it that way. I didn't really see a big problem with him, you know, saying that's ridiculous. That's not what we're, you know, what we're discussing. But as far as giving reparations to families that have been separated, we have to remember that there are 337, as of August, that was the closest I could find, but there are 337 
uh, families that are still separated. There are 337 children where they still can't locate the parents. So um, this was a tragedy. Um, and we all know, of course, uh, you know, section 1325 that um, basically says that crossing the border while it is a crime, it's a misdemeanor. So when we think of misdemeanors, we think of misdemeanors like shoplifting. Um, we don't separate families to the point where we can't locate the children or the, or the parents uh, for a misdemeanor or for any crime for that matter. It, that would be cruel and unusual. Um, you have to at least know where your children are, know where they're located, know where the parents are, be able to reunite them uh, at the soonest possible date. And that was something that wasn't done. It was very uh, ineffective, if not cruel, by the last administration. And I think that those families do deserve some reparations from the United States of America because we're the United States of America. We don't do that kind of thing. But we'd be, and, but we'd be giving but, them money for being held accountable for breaking our laws. Like, I, I realize you're saying that, you know, we don't have to imprison families. We don't have to detain them when they come across. But- Detaining illegal immigrants is available to the federal government as a way of holding people accountable. And the Trump administration decided we're going to go with zero tolerance. We're going to we're not going to tolerate any illegal immigration. We're going to make it so that it has real punishment, uh, real consequences. And as a result, try and deter all of this illegal migration into the country. And now we're going to be cutting checks to people for us enforcing our laws. Yeah, well, see, here's the thing. We can deter people from coming into the United States. I mean, we can discuss, of course, remain in Mexico and mm -hmm. some of the other policies that the Trump administration and even the Obama administration, which by the way, deported more people than any uh, previous administration. Uh, we can discuss the different deterrents that they had, but separating children from their families to the point where the children still can't find their parents, still can't find their guardians, still can't find their parents, not even keeping track um, that is not a deterrent. That's just cruelty. And the United States of America, at least the, the country that I know and love, does not engage in that kind of cruel behavior. Even if someone has broken the law, there are certain things that are cruel and unusual that we don't do to people. We don't separate their children. I mean, we've done it, of course, in our history, um, but we're a better nation than that now. And, and I hope that you know, when we do things wrong, we are also a good enough nation in order to uh, to pay some sort of recompense for what it is that we've done. Now, I agree. I agree with you that like any father, like real father and mother who's separated from a child, we should be able to keep track of where everybody is and get them back together as we deport them from the United States. I mean, that that makes complete sense to me. Mm -hmm. But the reality, you know, there's there's this kind of like talking point on the left, not that you're using today, I haven't heard you use it, but that, that Trump had a, uh, a family separation policy or a child separation policy. That was just never true. That was, that was the product of a zero enforcement policy wherein we detain illegal immigrants who come across the border and don't allow their status as a family unit to be a way that they can achieve sort of capture the flag amnesty. If you get across the border as a family unit, the traditional, uh, increasingly in the United States, you were being allowed to stay in the country uh, and released into the country anyway, uh, pending sort of litigating your illegal immigration. And then, you know, who knows if you show up for your court date? So many didn't. So the Trump administration decided, okay, fine, zero tolerance. We're just going to start detaining people. But here's the issue they ran into. Back during the Clinton administration, 
uh, the Clinton administration had reached something called a Flores settlement agreement that made it so that you can't detain children inside of uh, for illegal immigration crimes for more than 20 days. So the end result of that was that the parents couldn't actually stay with their kids. If we were going to con con continue zero tolerance, you had to take the kids and send them off to shelters and then keep the parents or whoever the adult was that they were traveling with in detention. So that so basically by enforcing our laws to the maximum extent in order to, to be a deterrent to illegal immigration, the effect of that was, yes, that uh, children couldn't stay in detention if they're under 18 beyond 20 days. So now as a result of all of that, as a result of the laws we have on the books, the, the federal government deciding to actually fully enforce our laws, the Flores Settlement Agreement, we got to cut checks for a million dollars a family to people who illegally yeah. immigrated into our into the country into the country. That's that's like that's like I, other people have made the comparison. That's way more than a gold star family gets. That's way more than any of the 9-11 survivors received from the federal government. Yeah, No, I, I think the 9-11 the survivors uh, deserve uh, to be paid and deserve uh, to be protected. I, I, I think that's a different um, question and, and the failures of the government have been documented there. Um, what I will say is that, first of all, I think you're, you're kind of glossing over, uh, you know, not intentionally, but you, you are glossing over the failures of trying to enforce a policy. And of course, you know, there is that Flores policy um, and not having a plan and not being competent enough to track where the children are and to not have the children in many cases have any contact with their parents. So you had children who were separated by their parents by a thousand miles in some cases. That is unacceptable. They, the children didn't know where their parents were. You had children being separated from their parents, literally babies. I'm talking babies who need their mothers, you know, 18 months old being separated from their parents. And yes, it is a failure, <clears throat> arguably, number one, seeking asylum. If you're coming through an, a legal port of entry, that is a legal process. If you are coming through a port of entry, not outside of a port of entry, but if you're mm -hmm. coming through uh, one of the checkpoints and you're going through and speaking to immigration officials and you are trying to get asylum in the United States, that is right. a legal process. Yes. You know, and so to, uh, you know, this idea that it's a crime or you're a criminal or anything like that, because you don't have documents, but you come through a legal port of entry. That's one of the things that I think the right does or, or talks about or talking point on the right that is completely false and, and, and is, you know, a, a purposeful obfuscation but of nobody our in laws those in our legal system. But nobody in those circumstances would be subjected to uh, detention and by, by extension, having being separated from their family members. So again, um, with the Trump administration and their level of disorganization, I'm not even sure that that's true. Uh, what we do know is that several hundred children were separated from their families um, where, they were, uh, where they were captured or, or whatever term you wanna use um, is not really clear in a lot of cases. We have hundreds of kids still to this very day that can't find their parents. And to think that they are not owed some sort of reparation for what for that kind of behavior by the United States government or that failure 
of the United States government. Now, I'm not putting a number on it. I'm not going to say $450,000 per person uh-huh. or you know a million dollars per person. I don't know what the right figure is. I'm not even going to try and guess that. But I do believe if someone were, if you were to travel to another country and someone were to separate you from your daughter, that you should, you deserve some sort of uh, form of reparation for that because that's traumatic for you and that's even more traumatic for your young daughter sure but i don't i don't think i i don't think you or i would break laws and realize that there were consequences for that law that could include uh you know not seeing your child that that would be the cost would be too much too great for me to well, do no, something here's, here's the thing first of like all that. you and i are not in desperate situations where you know our farm was destroyed by a mudslide caused by climate change and we're not you know, poor, we don't have gangs roaming through our neighborhoods, raping women. We don't have those kinds of situations. So we don't, and under Maybe, those but situations I can't, and circumstances, we don't know what we would do with our young children to protect our young daughters. Maybe, but I can't even go through a hypothetical scenario where I think it would make sense for me to, um, like, I don't, to, to abandon my daughter. I just, and to, to know that would be the consequence of it. I just, I don't care how destitute I am. I don't, I don't, I don't I, know that they were going through Central America, you know, with flyers telling them, hey, we're going to separate you from your daughter by a thousand miles and right, then you the won't word. be able to find her later. And if they did, that's even worse. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that what I'm chalking a lot of this up to is incompetence on, beha- on the behalf of the Trump administration. Maybe I'm, but- I'm going to say it's not complete cruelty, even though we know uh, some of the beliefs of Stephen Miller, who is the person who's the architect of this. Okay, so here's here's my only point. I just think that when you see a number like this, regardless of where the number ends up settling, even if it's $100,000 a person, it just seems like such a vulgar betrayal of American citizens. It's like, how many times do we have to see examples of where an illegal immigrant is given, for a foreign national who decides that they want to enter this country and stay here, of their own accord on their own initiative without coming through any legal process to do it. You know, how many times do we have to see something like that and be like, wait a second, why are they give, being given preferential treatment over the average American citizen? Why is it that an illegal immigrant can come into the United States and not be subjected to once they're in custody a vaccine mandate, for instance? That's not the policy of the United States. We are not forcibly vaccinating people who come across the border illegally. But we're not but, forcibly vaccinating people within the United States. Either. Yes, we are. No, we are not. Yes, There's we never, are. No, we're not. We're not grabbing anybody and putting needles in arms. I've never seen that. As Ask a condition, well, f- first of all, as a condition for a huge percentage of the country to keep their jobs, the, the federal government has required that they be vaccinated. So that is or, a compulsory or behavior. Or they can get tested for companies no. over 100 uh, over a hundred employees, they can go for weekly testing. But if you now, work if you for a Southwest... healthcare worker, mm-hmm. go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm just saying if you're a federal contractor, that that doesn't apply. You have mm-hmm. to get vaccinated. And so if you're like Southwest Airlines, for instance, there's no testing option. You've got to be vaccinated because you have federal business. So therefore, you are subject to this. And so, uh, so all I'm saying is that, wait a second. Why are such strict standards held? for American citizens, while simultaneously, we're not holding, we have very loosey-goose standards when it comes to illegal immigrants coming to the United States. And I just think that's like a normal sort of way to look at it is like, that's a betrayal of American citizenship. Like you shouldn't have it tougher than an illegal immigrant into the United States. Yeah, I, I, I disagree that we, that American citizens have it tougher 
And if you actually want it, if you want more for American citizens, I, I think you should support things like uh, universal pre-K. I think you should uh, support things that Americans need, like child tax uh, credits, like uh, you know, child uh, care, help with child care. Um, I think those are the things that would help Americans and put them in a, in a much better position and a much better place. But we see that Republicans are actually not supporting those things that would help lots of American families, working families, not the, the wealthy, not the one percenters who mm -hmm. can afford to send their kids to $500 a week uh, childcare facilities. Uh, you know, if you want those things, support those things. But for the couple of hundred people who are separated from their children, there's also something that I think goes even beyond American citizenship, and that's humanity. You know, we, we don't do things to people to hurt them. We don't do things to people, uh, you know, to, to harm their children and to psychologically harm their children. And when we do, whether it's purposeful or, or inadvertent, we try to rectify those ways in the best ways we can. And that's why you give somebody, you know, some money who uh, we've separated from their child for months and months. And every, every uh, professional, medical professional that mm -hmm. I've read has said that this is going to cause lasting effects, lasting trauma on those children who were separated from their families, who were separated from their mothers. Um, first of all, putting their families back together, mending the trust. Um, all of the things that those kids have gone through, you know, that's going to have lasting effects going on with the rest of their lives. And yes, mm -hmm. we, we do owe them something. Now, I don't know, like I said, $450,000 a person. I don't know about that number. That seems, seems like a lot. Um, but, you know, we as, we as American citizens and as the American people, we, we live to a higher standard. We're not Russia. We're not Iran. We're not North Korea. We're not China. You know, we, one of the things that makes us so great is that we do look at people's humanity, whether they're citizens or not. And so I, I'm, you know, I'm on this, the side of that. And I do think that there are benefits to American citizenship. If those people want to work, you know, those undocumented people or even the documented immigrants, if they want to work, they're going to be subject to the same rules that we're subject to. Um, which is, you know, if you're going to be in the United States, you got to do the same things that people in the United States do. So I don't see how they're getting a better deal than than American citizens. I mean, on that end, on that end, like they're being exploited, actually. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, for sure. We're so you've got there. <laughs> you've got you've got illegals who are being paid under the table at much lower rates than legally mandated by uh, business interests who are taking advantage of them. And so that's the reason, that's actually the reason our immigration system stays broken and very few people want to fix it because they, they enjoy illegal immigration as a um, means to take advantage of them. So it's just, <laughs> I don't know, it's a big issue and you and I have debated it uh, quite a number of times, but uh, I know we've got to move but, on to some other issues, but I'll, I'll let you put a button on this one. Yeah, well, one thing that I'll say is that um, we have to fix our immigration system. That's something that is the duty of Congress. And the one thing that I will also say is that, unfortunately, the way things are set up right now, we need undocumented immigrants um, for our farms, for, our, you know, to, to cultivate a lot of the food. They've tried experiments where they've just tried to hire working class and poor Americans. 
and it hasn't worked out. They did one in North Carolina and literally the, the uh, food that they were picking rotted in the fields uh, because it is labor intensive work for a very low wage. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, you know, until we fix our immigration system, we're going to actually need that undocumented labor. And that's that's the foul thing about it. And, I, you know, I agree with you that they're absolutely being exploited um, by, you know, moneyed interests. And so, I, you know, we're going to 100 percent agree there. Let's uh, let's jump into the energy secretary of the United States, Jennifer Granholm. Uh, she had quite an interesting week talking about energy prices. Uh, this weekend, she was on CNN's State of the Union uh, because, you know, a lot of Americans are feeling pain at the pump. She was asking questions about this. Living, I got to ask you about gas prices. Yeah. So according to AAA, the national average of gas prices is now $3.42 a gallon. Bank of America is predicting crude oil prices could soar another 50% by next June. Could the average gas price in America be $4 a gallon in the United States soon? Well, we certainly hope not. Uh, the, as I say, the Energy Information Agency is going to put out their forecast this week. The president is all over this. Of course, every president is frustrated because they can't control the price of gasoline because it's a global market. Um, he can call upon increased supply, which he has done. And OPEC uh, is unfortunately controlling the agenda with respect to oil prices. OPEC is a cartel and it controls over 50 percent of the supply of gasoline. Is there anything that the Biden administration can do about OPEC? Um, well, he can call upon them to increase supply, and they have chosen this past week not to do that. So that is going to increase the chokehold on access to affordable fuel at the pump. That is Jennifer Granholm saying, look, there's nothing we can do. Do you believe that? Um. <clears throat> Well, first of all, I, I will agree with her that that OPEC is a cartel of mm -hmm. gangsters and their hold on crude is exactly why we need to move to electric vehicles and renewable energy. Like, I think that's exactly the uh, the one of the points in, in, in addition. And this is one of the things that I, I tried to say to my friends on the left. If we want to make this argument to the American people, it can't just be the doomsday argument. Some of it has to be an economic argument. And the economic argument, of course, is that we'll go through another sort of industrial revolution um, where we're going to push things forward and create new jobs and new industries. And the other part of it, of course, is that uh, we'll be less dependent um, on you know, outside sources for our energy. Um, it is true that America has become more energy dependent in terms of you know, oil and, and other natural gas, but we can become even more independent or more independent if we um, produce it here through wind and solar and electric cars. And, you know, OPEC right now, they're a bunch of gangsters that basically control the market. They, can, they have a 50% market share. That's exactly why we need to transition to another, um, another position. I think Biden right now, um, I think he's making one major mistake. And that is, um, there is a pipeline, I believe, in the north of Michigan, northern Michigan, um, that goes into Canada. And the Canadians are upset about this. But Biden, uh, while he's talking about some of the energy issues that we have here, is going to close another pipeline um, right before the winter months, which I think is a 
or they say this is a possibility. And I think that that is a mistake. At least wait until the winter is over before you start shutting down pipelines in the United States. There is a, a real fear that there's going to be an oil spill and ruin the Great Lakes. And I get that. And I think that it probably does need to be shut down at some point, but not right before the winter months when we have this energy shortage um, and crude oil is becoming really expensive. I think a lot of these OPEC countries are trying to make up for all of the, mon the money that they lost um, during the pandemic. So they're overcharging the whole world on crude. And I think we need to become as independent um, from the OPEC cartel as we can. Is there something that Biden can do in the immediate uh, future? Uh, I'm not so sure. I mean, we have the, we have the oil reserve. He has, uh, uh, we have reserve oil uh, here in the United States. And I think he's gonna tap into that. That's the one thing he can do. Other than that, and you know, in order to keep prices from skyrocketing to you know seven dollars a gallon, uh, I think Europe is an even worse position than we are. Um, but other than tapping into our oral reserves, there's really nothing we can do. Now, I disagree. I think there is more we can do, and a lot of it has to do kind of with the topic that you just mentioned, pipelines, for instance. You know, shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline is his, on his first day in office, sent a gigantic message to the American energy industry about where things were headed. Uh, and, and, you know, that resulted in the loss of 20,000 or so jobs by some estimates, not just on the pipeline, but uh, associated jobs along the way, you know, the restaurants and the, and the various businesses that would benefit from the workers who make that money working on the pipeline. Um, you know, these pipelines, you know, the, think about the way that, that oil is transported. If you don't have a pipeline, you've got to do it by truck or rail. And the incidence of spills and the incidence of accidents actually increases in those circumstances. So in terms of just like the pure environmental nature of this, a pipeline is actually rather a safe way uh, to transport um, oil. It's, a, it's actually a, a really much safer way and much less risky way to transport energy. And well, so it depends. That, that actually depends. Mm -hmm. Because as I was reading about this line five in Michigan, yeah. Um, the issue is that the pipeline is old and that, of course, leaves it subject like a lot of our infrastructure is old and uh, that leaves it subject to, to oil spills. And, mm. you know, the ones that run through water, bodies of water like that is hard really to dangerous. Yeah. yeah. So and, and hard to fix. So, so that's that's a perfectly good argument. And you're right. It's an argument for uh, good maintenance and good infrastructure. Absolutely. But. I guess my point is like the Biden administration has been characterized when it comes to American energy by shutting down access to uh, fossil fuel development in the United States. So they've been shutting down new leases on federal lands. They've been shutting down drilling projects, abandoning them, abandoning pipeline projects. And the end result is that it's kind of handcuffed the American energy industry. We went from a position of being a net energy exporter in the, in the United States. Uh, and we're moving backwards to, to now we're approaching OPEC on bended knee and begging them to increase supply. We don't want to be in that situation. I think now it's possible to achieve it all. And what I mean by that is continue to, you know, leave unrestrained and unfettered the ability of the American energy industry to produce the energy we need. So even if you support electric cars, for instance, which are actually pretty cool technology, um, in order to power those electric cars, we just don't have 
the renewable plants or anything like that at the moment to charge them. We need to rely on traditional fuel sources, whether it's fossil fuels or nuclear, in order to power a lot of these electric goods. That's just true. And in the meantime, we can keep on working on innovations in American energy. That's perfectly good. Uh, but I just think that this this like thing that Jennifer Granholm's doing is she keeps coming out and it's like, ah, there's, you know, nothing we can do. That's just not true. I mean, obviously the strategic oil reserve that you mentioned is a resource, but in terms of like actually taking the handcuffs, handcuffs off of American energy so that they can produce more energy here in the United States so that we are less dependent on countries who pollute when they pull that energy in a way that we don't, um, that's just, I don't think it's good for us. And I, and I think it's worth uh, reconsidering the direction the Biden administration has taken us. Yeah, well, so I, I think you, you make some really strong points here. This is going to be one of those days where I think we're, we find some points of agreement. I think um, the one thing that, that I think is important that you stated was innovation. That's what, again, has made America great economically is the fact that we're willing to innovate and not get stuck in uh, one way of doing things for generations and generations and I think electric cars, wind, solar, that is the next innovation in energy production. And we can't sit here and just say, oh, we're going to be stuck on oil. We're going to be stuck on oil. Um, I just think that that's a, that's a bad move for the United States. And it's not the way that we've moved forward economically. Yeah. You mentioned Keystone, XL Pipeline. Um, I think the issue with that, in addition to some of the environmental issues, some of the issues, you know, indigenous groups have, have had issues with these pipelines throughout the country. You talked about job loss. Of course, we know that uh, Biden had a pretty strong week with jobs. We're at 4.6% unemployment right now. We're doing pretty well in terms of jobs. So closing down the pipelines have not costed uh, us as many jobs as you know, hasn't been a disaster for the economy. Um, I think, you know, moving, I think there's a short-term situation and then there's the long-term situation. And I think in the short term, we agree, you have to go to our oil, you know, the strategic reserve. I think we have to do that, um, dip into that. And then in the long-term, we can't sit here and just be stuck on oil, because yes, we can produce quite a bit here in the United States. Um, I mean, fracking course, is a miracle. Fracking, the natural gas we've been pulling, it's just a miracle. It doesn't, it's low emissions. It's an incredible technology. We're able to, it's like, instead of the traditional drilling, they've been able to get down under the earth and sort of branch things out and pull natural gas. It's just like amazing what we're able to do. We should just enable that. And in the interim, continue to innovate American energy, I think. So the thing with fracking and, and you know, I've, I've tried to read both sides of this because I, you know, I, I try, you know, I don't just stick to one team. I, you sure. know, I try to really do my due diligence and I'm, I'm unsure, you know, to be honest, like I, I, I hear your side of it. And I've also heard the side that, that fracking is dangerous and um, is not this uh, miracle that many people believe. And I'd say while we're in that kind of situation, we can't go all in on fracking, particularly when we have other options that we know are clean, that we know will work, that we know um, will, uh, you know, give us good, strong energy in the future. Um, and that's, you know, that's the wind, that's the solar. And 
you know, that's the yeah. electric. So let and, me stipulate. You mentioned nuclear and I, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not against that either. Now that nuclear, you know, I think we've gotten to a different place. And you and I discussed this in our interview with uh, Delina DeSanto, which if anybody hasn't watched that, you, you certainly should. Um, she's definitely got a lot of information on energy. Um, was, you know, nuclear is not the same as it was during Three Mile Island and, and Chernobyl. Right. So maybe we should explore that. I'm not, you know, I don't know a ton about nuclear, you know, uh, quite a bit more, but it's something that we should explore uh, if it's a clean source of energy. Let me circle back to a point that you made earlier, though, and I think it's really important, and I wish it was involved in more of these debates. This is all complex stuff, and it's not just about energy, and it's not just about the climate or any, any one particular thing. It's about everything. So when you are going to move a piece on the chessboard, there's going to be dramatic impacts for the rest of the board. And that's why we have to think really clearly before we make dramatic changes to what is this going to do to people's jobs? What is this going to do to the economy? Is it going to make people poorer? At this moment, people are poorer right now than they were last year. That's a big deal. So like, I think it's worth thinking clearly about this and not acting as if it's simple and not acting as if there's only one priority um, because, you know, Americans and their livelihoods are at stake and, you know, paying 50% more than you were last year for gas. That's not just you filling up your car and having problems. That's you paying literally more for everything and having problems. So I just, I, uh, I caution prudence here. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're, you're right. Um, you know, we, we are, I don't know if we're poor. I mean, I'd, I'd have to actually. What I'm referencing see. when I say we're poor, what I'm referencing is yes, is, wages are up, but inflation is higher yeah, than wages are right that now. That is true. Which, yep. which means that the average person who's not, you know, like a hedge fund guy um, is technically poorer than they were last year, even if they have so, higher wages. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, a lot of people have uh, because of all the aid that we gave during the pandemic, a lot of people have a lot more reserve money in their bank accounts than they ever had, you know, um, a lot more money saved. Um, so this is why, you know, some businesses haven't been able to, to hire new workers is because people have a ton of money saved from everything, you know, all the money that we dumped into the economy. At the same time, that does cause inflation. The question is, how long is that inflation going to last? Mm-hmm. And I think now, that we're coming out on the other side of the pandemic. Um, of course, we have this new drug from Pfizer, which, by the way, is not cheap. You know, for people who are like, I don't want to get vaccinated. Now they have a drug that the vaccine is a lot cheaper than getting that drug um, that they're that Pfizer is going to put out. And I believe uh, some of it is either related to or you have to take it with the HIV with an HIV drug or something hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, those drugs are incredibly expensive. Um, so, uh, you know, we're on the other side. Point is, fewer people will die. Fewer people will be hospitalized. We're coming out on the other side of the pandemic because there's no uh, other uh, variant that we know of that is out ravaging another country. So yeah, I hope you're like- right. I really hope you're right. The other yeah, one that, that that comes to mind, by the way, is um that that drug fluvoxamine, which is an antidepressant that was like proved to be like super effective against COVID. In some recent studies, there was very, scientists very encouraged by it. That apparently is dirt cheap. That drug is like 
super cheap to buy. Uh, so hopefully that's like the invitation for us to get out of all this like craziness because there's just too much of it going on. Yeah, and, no, and I'd, I'd like I'd, to see I really hope that we're that we're done with this pandemic and we're coming out on the other end. And I think all of the signals say that we are. And if that's the case, um, what I think Janet Yellen and, and all of these people are saying is that we will uh, get over this inflation hump um, moving forward. I hope that's true. Let's, uh, by the way, speaking of inflation, uh, I should point out here that this program is brought to you by Gold Co. Everybody likes gold. A little hedge against Everybody that inflation. Gold. Uh, Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming was uh, talking the climate and the price of oil this weekend. Let's take a look at that, and I'll get your reaction on the other side. Gas at the pump at a seven-year high. And then Joe Biden and large entourage of Democrats from the House and the Senate and his cabinet all jetting off to Europe to a climate conference. And for what purpose? What did he do there? He pledged allegiance to the flag of the United Nations instead of to the flag of the United States. He basically apologized for America. He begged OPEC and Putin to create more energy, to make more energy. And he promised to raise energy prices in America. We know why prices are high. Biden, day number one, killed the Keystone XL pipeline. He's blocked oil and gas exploration leasing opportunities in the Rocky Mountain West. Big impact in my home state of Wyoming. Shut down Alaska energy to the point that today we're using more oil from Russia than we are from Alaska. And these guys are climate hypocrites. I mean, their carbon footprint for going to this conference was so much larger than Vladimir Putin's or President Xi's of China because they stayed home. All right. I think, uh, Jason, this kind of gets to a bunch of the broad points that you and I were just discussing about uh, American energy. I would say from where I'm sitting, I think John Barrasso is right to assess that there are a bunch of things that Biden has done that just completely limited American energy development uh, this year. And as a result, has left us hat in hand begging uh, the Saudis and the OPEC nations to provide the oil that we need. A situation I feel like could have been avoided. Clearly, we're in the midst of a pandemic. There are going to be these outside forces that are that very much have an impact on this that are not controlled by any politics. But to the extent that politics played a role, I think Biden has acted to our detriment. Yeah, I, I would... You know, um, so the, fir the first things, first things first, you know, he's praising President Xi and Vladimir Putin for not going and asserting leadership um, in the international community. And uh, I, I just have a different view of that. I think that, <laughs> I, first of all, I'm, I'm not out here going to, you know, praising Putin or, or President Xi. Right. Uh, that's, that's just not kind of how I roll. Um, <laughs> but that's my um, red line. Yeah. So I, I'm going to, you know, he's like, they didn't go and Biden did. Uh huh. Um, I, I actually think that it was good for Biden, who has not really traveled a whole lot um, as president. You know, the, we've seen presidents who usually you know, going all over the world. I think, uh, you know, I, I would argue, I, I don't know, I, I don't have the, the facts in front of me, but I'm pretty sure um, that certainly President Obama and probably President Trump made more international trips uh, in the first year of their presidency than has Joe Biden. So I think Joe Biden, uh, and again, part of this is driven by the pandemic, but Joe Biden um, needed to go uh, and make an international trip 
and assert the leadership of the United States of America, which was in question during the Trump administration. Um, I think the international community didn't have the same respect for us. So Joe Biden went out and he uh, said, we're going to be leaders on climate. Um, and, you know, I, I, I understand this guy doesn't want to fly planes anymore, but I don't know another way to get to Glasgow. Mm -hmm. um, so I, <laughs> you got to take a you, boat like Greta Thunberg did when she came right, to the UN. Yeah. You want to get on the Titanic? Um, <laughs> fine. You know, uh, but I, I think it's it's OK for the president of the United States to fly planes. I think mm -hmm. when we are talking about in the United States, if you can get there on rail, which is one of the things that is uh you know hopefully going to be you know is, is being signed into law with the uh infrastructure, the infrastructure bill mm -hmm. i think is a is a you know is, is a good thing and a good move forward but europe's been doing that for a long time they've always had high speed rail it feels like in japan also has high speed rail yeah and i'm pretty sure china does too if i'm not mistaken um so i think we're we're behind on that and the president is trying to take us into the 21st century with that. And that that's a good thing. Uh, but he still needs to fly overseas. And I still think that the president of the United States being uh, in front of the international community and saying, look, the United States is going to be the leader on these issues is really important and is really good uh, for our image in the international community. I do wonder how much strength we're actually projecting, though, with a guy like Joe Biden as president. The reason I do wonder that is, um, first of all, the, the meeting began with his, his European trip began with a meeting with Emmanuel Macron, which uh, Biden walks into and he's apologizing for upending the submarine deal between France and Australia. It was a pretty icy meeting. Like Macron was not was like, well, you know, things will hopefully get better from here. Well, it was not French. It was. <laughs> it was a, It wasn't a lot of the you know the French love. I'll just put it that way. Uh, and then, um, and then of course he apologized for Donald Trump pulling us out of the Paris Climate Accords, which um, those the climate accords really are. I think were a mistake. I mean, there's a lot of virtue signaling in the Paris Climate Accords. Is like countries were basically asked like on the honor system to try and limit their emissions. It was kind of you know, it, was, it seemed to me just a big giveaway to China, uh, the Paris Climate Accords, like to basically we're all going to kneecap ourselves and then China's going to take off running uh, with uh, its production, its manufacturing, its jobs. Um, and so so I, I've always thought that the Paris Climate Accords were silly. Additionally, our, our, our emissions in the United States went down every year of the Trump presidency. Uh, so regardless of whether or not we were actually in the accords, like mission accomplished, like the, the, the climate emissions kept going down. So I, anyway, it's just, I do wonder to what extent we can say that the world is looking at Biden and going, man, the United States is really strong right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, well, to your one point, I think you're right. Um, and Greta Thunberg basically said exactly what you're saying in that um, a lot of these climate meetings are non-binding. They don't really have any kind of teeth. <laughs> Um, or as Greta would say, blah, blah, blah. That was her point. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So much right. blah, blah, blah. There, there's a whole lot of blah, blah, blah. Um, when you're dealing with a lot of these nations who are like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Uh-huh. You know? Yep, I do. You know, uh, putting their, you know, crossing their fingers and saying, yeah, yeah, you know, we're going to try. Um, 
So I definitely think that there is a lot of virtue signaling in that regard. Um, I do think that the United States can be a leader and create new jobs and create new industries and innovate if we start looking for different ways of producing energy. So I, I, again, I'm going to repeat myself there. And for people who are still stuck on coal and still stuck on, you know, other ways, you know, natural gas that we've produced, I think there's better ways where we can actually be leaders, you know, uh, instead of following and create a new, you know, uh, be leaders in creating new industries. And we haven't done that. Um, and so I think what Joe Biden did, it is a projection of strength. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not saying Joe Biden's the strongest guy in the world, but I think he did project a little bit of strength by, by saying that we are the leaders. And his meeting with Emmanuel Macron. Um, <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah, <laughs> I tried to get the Macron. <laughs> uh, try, trying to get the, uh, the accent there. But, you know, his meeting again, the French, and shout out to all my friends who are French. I got a couple <laughs> friends. I actually met up with a dude this weekend. I'm, you know, I'm kind of advising him on his dissertation, and uh, you know, he's he's French. So shout out to Benoit. Um, the French, in this context, can can be a little crabby. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're beautiful people. They're kind people. But I understand them feeling like they got undercut. And when, yeah. you know, yeah. so if they're feeling like they've been undercut and they are an ally and been an ally for a long time, you're yeah. going to be like, yeah, suck it. No. They did actually get undercut. I, I, yeah, I go you, back you to say, what I said look, before. My bad. I, I go I'm back not to what changing I said before, anything. though. I, I got to be honest. Like, I do like that America scored the contract. Like, I'm kind of for that. Like, you know. Yeah. Like, I want our American companies to be able to sell this stuff, too. It's, it's kind of like it. apologizing to your, you know, to your girlfriend after you cheated on her. It's like, yo, sorry about that. I mean, it's already <laughs> done. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I already True. did the deed. I can't yeah. change it. But sorry. Totally sorry. <laughs> You know what I mean? I don't think that that makes me. you, yeah, it doesn't make you weak. I think I, you know, so people uh, saying that he's weak for apologizing. I don't think so. I mean, he already did the deal. He's not giving the money back. Yeah. Like, I mean, he continues to insist that he had no idea. He's like, I didn't even know you guys were planning a thing. Um, all right. Let me jump over to the white house chief of staff who probably w did know what was going on. Ron Klain. Um, he uh, spoke out this weekend on the passage of this infrastructure deal on Friday. Take a look. Now is the president's uh, chief of staff, Ron Klain. Mr. Klain, welcome back to Meet the Press, sir. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Uh, the bipartisan infrastructure package passed the Senate on August 10th and it now passed the House on November 5th. Obviously, a lot happened between that time period. Uh, how important, frankly, were Tuesday's elections to you creating the urgency among Democrats to get this done on Friday night? Well, look, I do think the voters uh, sent a message on Tuesday. They wanted to see more action in Washington. They wanted to see things move more quickly. And, and three days later, Congress responded, passing the president's infrastructure bill. But, but a lot of work went into getting us there over the past few months. So I don't think the election alone put it over the line. What put it over the line was President Biden starting back in April, putting it before the country, working with Democrats and Republicans in the Senate to get it through the Senate in August, working with a broad coalition in the House to finally pass it. All right. All right. Yeah, that's so that's Ron Klain, uh, Jason Nichols saying, yeah, I mean, like the truth is like 
there is a message from the elections and and uh, Democrats heard it. So they decided to, to move on this legislation as a result. What do you think? Um, so there's some truth to that. But I, I think that if that was their reasoning, they were wrong. And the reason I say that is because when you look at the exit polls of what people in Virginia were interested in, it was mainly local issues. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it wasn't infrastructure or, or, you know, Congress or anything like that. It was about their local issues, education, right. many other things. And we could debate, we can discuss, you know, whether those, you know, thoughts are valid or, or not. But those were, that was what people in Virginia were interested in. They were interested right. in Virginia. Um, people in New Jersey, which Democrats actually came out with the win, and I'm, I'm a firm believer, um, you know, to quote uh, the Fast and the Furious, you know, by an inch or by a mile, <laughs> you know, if you win, you win. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they pulled out a victory there. And it's like, you know, Republicans are like, they barely won. It's like, yo, I won. It doesn't matter. I won. But I think a lot of times we talk about these national implications yes. for these local elections. And we forget that people actually care about what's going on locally. That's right. And same thing we did with California. Remember California? Democrats scored a big victory. This is going to show how the nation is feeling. No, it didn't. It felt it showed how people in California, particularly the really heavily populated areas like Los Angeles mm -hmm. and the Bay Area, it showed how they felt. Um, so I, yes. I, I think, you know, trying to build these national narratives out of some of these local elections right. is, you know, it's just incorrect. Now, this is what this is this uh, point that uh, Ron Klain is making here is the same point Terry McAuliffe was making as he was running for governor. He was insistent yeah. that, well, if only Washington would pass the infrastructure deal, then I wouldn't be losing as badly as I am no, or it just wouldn't be close. Uh, and, right, and it goes right to your point, which is yeah. like, well, wait a second. Are you even paying attention to the voters of your state or in this case, your commonwealth? Uh, are you paying attention to them? Because that's not what they're talking about. Right. So I, I agree with you, uh, Jason, on this. I do think that um, there was a panic within the Democratic caucus this week. And this is what Nancy Pelosi was able to use in order to shore up the support she needed among that's Democrats. True. Like, hey, wait a second. Look at this. Like, OK, so we get our asses handed to us this week in a number of races across this, the country. The next step is what? To prove that like Washington's Democrats are feckless? Don't do that. We've got to pass something. Right. So they decided to end the week with a political win. They get this thing across the finish line. They do it with the assistance of 13 Republicans. Now, what happens next? That's, I think, the critical question. Because right now what I'm seeing in, uh, in right-wing media, conservative media broadly, is uh, uh, like fear that the groundwork was just laid to pass the reconciliation package, which is $2 trillion in social spending uh, and includes all sorts of things that conservatives broadly just loathe. They, they're not for it. They're not on board. They see it as socialist spending. We don't need to fire $2 trillion out the window. Now, there are plenty of conservatives who have been on board with infrastructure spending and have been for years, and especially during the Trump administration, increasingly came around to that idea that, that we need good infrastructure in the United States. But the fear right now is, wait a second, has the groundwork been laid for the reconciliation bill? Now, here's where I want your thoughts, Jason, for sure, on everything I just said, but especially this. I wonder if this reconciliation bill actually ends up getting passed at all. The reason I say that is because up until this past Friday, Nancy Pelosi was 
doing what the most left-wing elements of her caucus wanted, the Congressional Progressive Caucus that is led by Pramila Jayapal, was that they wanted both pieces of legislation to be passed together. On Friday, just one was. Right. I think there's a chance here that Nancy Pelosi has given up on reconciliation and they're dressing it up. They're pretending like that's not the case, but that 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 reconciliation bill is dead and nobody wants to say it out loud, but they already but but the progressive caucus just lost its leverage. The, the infrastructure package is gone. They don't have it to really use anymore. Right. right. I wonder what you think. Um, no, I, I think that the progressive uh, caucus is going to have to, I, I think what you're going to see is that it's going to get uh, pared down even more. So it's going to, you know, it's at 1.7 trillion. You're going to get mm-hmm. a, a $1 trillion reconciliation. <laughs> They're going to give us McDonald's coupons at the end of right. it. That'll be, that'll be like <laughs> buy one, get one Big Mac. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think, you know, you'll probably get universal pre-K um, you know, a couple other things, but as they've been stripping out the, the paid family leave, which is very popular. That's the funny thing is that I think what Nancy Pelosi, what her argument was, of course, the one that you made, which is, look, we need a victory right now. We need a victory really badly. Um, after what happened in Virginia and after what nearly happened in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. But I think her argument was down the line, we actually need more time to sell this to the American people. Because everyone is saying, as Dr. Nichols has said for literally five years, that Democrats are terrible at messaging. (laughs) You know what I mean? They need to message this. Because when you go through polls, when you say build back better, nobody's Mm -hmm. with it. When you go by item by item, paid family leave, people love that. When you, when you talk about free community college, which is out of the bill, people love that. When you talk about child tax credits, people love that. Help with child care, yeah. people love it. You know, when you about... go down line by line, people mm-hmm. actually like that. So what they need is more time. I hope this is what Nancy Pelosi said. I hope she said, look, we need more time to market this to the American people. Take it straight to them. Take it to the people in your districts. Take it all over the country so that we can change the narrative from critical race theory to what's really going to help American families and children. And that's what I think her message was. Right now, build back better as a package. You'll pass it. Republicans have out-messaged us the the entire time as evidenced in a lot of these parts of the country. And you're gonna, people are gonna be like, oh great, I got a couple hundred dollars in my bank account. Oh, I didn't have to pay as many taxes. But who cares, the Democrats and critical race theory, you know, because they don't, they won't make the connection. So you need to market better over these next couple of months or weeks or maybe even months and then come back to it and then pass reconciliation when it gets really popular Mm. with Democrats and with independent voters. Because independent voters right now are turned off from Democrats. Uh, They've been completely messaged better to by Republicans about spending and deficits and critical race theory and all this stuff 
um, they've been, you know, basically outmaneuvered and now their hearts are turning more to the right. If you start going and messaging correctly to those people, um, which I'll just say this, Vincent Jason Save the Nation is really geared toward that audience and we haven't found them. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know how to, how to get at the, that independent thinking audience, but you know, it, it, they've got to get those people back on their side by talking about what's in Build Back Better mm. and marketing those ideas. And they need more time for that. They couldn't do that in the next week or two. So let's pass infrastructure, market, build back better, and then come back to it. And that's what I hope that she said to her caucus. And I hope Pramaya Jayapal was like, you're right. We'll see. We'll see what happens. As always, Vincent Jason Save the Nation can be found if you subscribe anywhere you can find a podcast. And also make sure to like, subscribe, comment, and share on Facebook and YouTube uh, to make sure a lot of people get to see this show. Jason Nichols, thanks as always. Great to talk to you, sir. Absolutely. Thank you, Vince.